Isaiah 36, all right? Isaiah 36. We're going to look at Isaiah 36, 37, 38, and 39. Probably not so much the 39, but hopefully, if you've been reading along, uh, you have made your way through the majority of the uh, first section of Isaiah, which we were talking about, 39 chapters, starting with verse, uh, the 39 chapters that we talked about uh, being mirrored of the Old Testament. What we get in Isaiah 36 through 39 is really a trans like a transitional section. We've been talking a lot about prophecy, right? Been talking a lot about future things. Last week, we dove into talking about the millennium. If you believe that's a symbolic thousand years, or you believe that is a physical thousand years, uh, that's described of the time in between the return of Christ and the judgment seat uh, and, and the great white throne judgment of God. There's a time period in between there. Many believe through Isaiah and through Revelation chapter 19 and 20 that that is a thousand year period of a earthly rule and reigning of Christ where the nations will bow down before Christ, the nations will uh, serve Christ, and then those who have been redeemed sit as judges, as we talked about this a little bit last week, with Christ to rule and reign during that time. And so uh, depending on how, how you how, you, how your worldview is or how your eschatology view is, uh, is where you'll land on part of that. And like I said before, it's always very, very difficult uh, to, to interpret some of these passages because, um, you know, you have the literal view, you have the metaphorical view, then you have, uh, you know, the, the immediate context, you have the future context, then you have the far future context. So Isaiah hits them all. I mean, Isaiah really uh, goes uh, through the whole list of them, but dropped right in between a lot of these prophecies is real historical facts, like uh, prophecies that Isaiah was giving directly at that moment in the time of the nation of Israel. And so that's what he does here. He drops back down into history. He's not so much talking about the future as he's talking about the historical perspective of where they are now. And as you move through these chapters, uh, you'll discover what we have is, like I said, this transition. 36 and 37, we'll look backward. Uh, 38 and 39, we'll kind of look forward, so to speak. The nation, of is the nation that the children of Israel is dealing with immediately uh, at the moment in 36 and 37 is Assyria. That is the impending threat we're going to talk about. Then in 38 and 39, it moves a little more towards Babylon and uh, the natural or the physical city of Babylon and the Babylonians come into view. So uh, tonight, looking through these chapters, Hezekiah is the main character in these chapters. Uh, Isaiah is the prophet, so you have the historical king of Hezekiah and you have the prophet Isaiah. God's giving him these visions uh, through Isaiah to give to Hezekiah and Hezekiah is the king of Judah, who Isaiah has, uh, is interrelated inter to uh, in this particular period of time and history. Which is a great reminder, when you study your Bible, it is not chronological, alright? I don't know how many people make the mistake to start out in the Old Testament and think it's all chronological. The first 17 books is the law and historical books, 
You got the first five, as we know, it's Pentateuch, which is the five books of the law. Then after that, you have true historical facts. They are historical history that happened in the moment in time. Then we have the five poetical books, uh, which is the Psalms, the Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes. Then, then you have the 17 prophetical books, five major, 12 minor. I went to school in Alabama, but I'm pretty sure that's 39 books, right? <laughs> 39 books in your Old Testament. And uh, what happens is when we get a little confused because we start mixing the historical with the prophetical, or we mix the prophetical with the historical, and we get a little bit lost. But always remember when you're in the, prophet, you know, the prophet section, they are prophesying in times of the historical section. And the historical man and king that we're going to talk about is Hezekiah. Now, some of you are scholars about Hezekiah because maybe you've really studied uh, all the book of Hezekiah and all the prophecies. Just kidding. There's not a book called Hezekiah, all right? But it is a good test if you want to try someone. Say, turn to the book of Hezekiah and see how many people turn to the, try to find the book of Hezekiah. It's not a book, but uh, it, it is a book. Uh, so to speak, here in Isaiah. Some biblical scholars call this the book of Hezekiah in the midst of Isaiah. So uh, it's not a literal book, but this is a good portion of Scripture about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. Some say that he is mentioned more uh, than any other king in the Old Testament, with the exception of King David and King Solomon. So if you're in company with King David and King Solomon... You've probably done something pretty significant. 2 Kings 18, verse 5, kind of gives us a summary of Hezekiah. It says this, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. I don't know about you, but if you can live and you can die and someone were to say about you, you trusted in the Lord God of Israel more than anyone before you or after you, you've done something pretty significant, right? So it's a, it's Hezekiah is a great study. We know that he's, we're going to learn tonight a little bit about him, but also I encourage you to go back and take a look about, look some more about it. Like I said, aside from King David and King Solomon, he was probably the greatest king in the history of the children of Israel. Uh, but he was also a man. We're going to read some chapters where you realize that he's nothing but, uh, you know, he's, he's made of dust and he has feet of clay. And it's always great for a, to remind ourselves of this, right? Uh, a lot of times in the Old Testament, a lot of times today, we get to a point where we begin to think a man is so great and we maybe even begin to worship the man rather than the God of the man, right? Well, Hezekiah was a great man, but he was still a man. And we're going to see that he had feet of clay. We're going to see that he was made of dust. He makes mistakes, and he doesn't get it all right, and just like everyone else. That's why it's so important that you follow after God and not after man. In fact, one person said that if you're not following Christ because of what someone has done or said to you, then you were never following Christ in the first place, all right? Because God will never let you down. Christ will not let you down. But man will. Pastors will. Preachers will. Uh, friends will. Uh, other church members will. We're, we're nothing but dust, and we're nothing but made feet of clay. And this Hezekiah, as great as he was, he still made mistakes. And he still was human. 
So we're going to learn in these verses how to handle a crisis, like I mentioned in my prayer. What to do when a crisis comes uh, in your life. If you haven't had a crisis yet, anybody in here never had a crisis in their life? All right, buckle up because it's coming, all right, <laughs> because we know crisis is a part of life. And, uh, you know, they come. And unfortunately, we don't really have a choice when they come, right? And most of the time, they come at the times when it's the worst timing possible sometimes, right? Like, how in the world could this happen now, right? Just when we don't need a crisis, here it comes. Matter of fact, someone says, with crisis, when it rains, it pours. Others have said they come in threes. Have you ever heard this? They come in threes. That, that things happen and they come in threes. Other times people say you're either, either, you're either in a crisis, you're coming out of a crisis, or you're heading into a crisis, right? Because it literally, sometimes our lives can be just described as crisis management, right? Because it seems that we go from crisis to crisis to crisis. And Hezekiah here has three crises back to back to back. There's an international crisis where the Assyrians was about to uh, come in and destroy Jerusalem. There was a personal crisis where Hezekiah has an awful disease we're going to talk about and a life-threatening sickness. And then there was a national crisis at the end, and it's a matter related to the Babylonians. So first to the international crisis in Isaiah chapter 36. This is going to be talking about a military siege, a crisis of impending doom from this military action that's going to be taken against the nation of Israel and uh, Hezekiah as the leader. These chapters give a historical account of this siege, uh, which is conducted by Shinnacherb and the king of Assyria, who sent up his captain against Jerusalem. So, verses 1 and 2, it says, Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshaka with a great army from Lachish, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, before I get too excited, those are the easiest names I'm going to be saying tonight, all right? Because I don't know about you when you get the Old Testament. If I can't pronounce it, you're just going to hear the name Bubba. All right, if you hear the name Bubba, you'll have to read it for yourself because uh, there are some difficult, difficult names. But here's the background of it. Sinatra is heard that King Hezekiah had developed an alliance with the Egyptians. Remember, we talked a little bit about the Egyptians. And this made him mad. This infuriated him. It enraged him, and he was, gonna, he was uh, planning an impending and an invasion to the land of Judah. That's the setting. And a great army has camped outside of Jerusalem. And it was about to uh, tear down the walls or penetrate the walls and overtake Judah. Look at verses 3 through 7. Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, Hilka, who was over the household, Shebna to the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Then Rabashakah said to them, and say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. 
Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if, any, if a man leans on it, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he who, whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? So King Hezekiah sends out three uh, delegates, right? So our three representatives, Elikim, Shebna, and Joah. And so they go out to speak and they come out to meet with them. And this is a classic study of how the devil likes to operate, right? Uh, the enemy has come, camped on the outside, and they begin to trash talk. You know what I mean? They begin to, they begin to mock. They begin to uh, tear into them and try to strike fear into them. And he tries, they try to shake the confidence of the, of the people and their trust in the Lord. So if you look there, Rob Shaka says to them, uh, who are you going to trust in? Uh, who's going to go against this great king of Assyria, right? Like, your king is nothing compared to our great king. And what trust do you have? This Egypt, who's a, a reed who's been broken? If you lean on the staff, it will stab you in the hand because they're going to be broken in half. They are nothing, nothing compared to the power of our nation, the power of our military, the power of our king is going to overcome you all. And then if even in the midst of all that, if you say you trust in the Lord, you don't even, even have the altars of the Lord open. And Hezekiah has not even turned to the Lord. And now we are on this uh, brink of totally destroying you. If you read through there, there are seven times uh, through these verses 7 through 15 that the word trust is used. So what he's trying to do is shake their trust. He's trying to shake their faith. He's trying to shake their confidence in God, try to make them fearful. And, and, you know, for us as Christians, for us who go into crisis, for us who has impending doom, that's usually one of the first tactics, tactics of the devil's fear, right? Uh, I love that song by Zach Williams, Fear is a Liar. Anybody ever hear that song, Fear is a Liar? That's, that's a tactic of Satan is to use fear. To, to pull you down, to drag you down, to shake your confidence. And he says some things are true, but then he also says things that are not true, and then he uses them against them. But his basic premise is, is false. He's trying to get them to buy that God has deserted them, and it is futile for them to put their trust in the Lord. They should not trust in God. How could you trust in God when you see our great king and you see our army and we're impending on your walls and you should be so fearful that destruction is looming and it's going to be for sure going to happen and he tries to strike fear into him. That's exactly what the devil tries to do. When you have a crisis in, the light, in your life, one of the first things he comes in and says, you don't need to trust in God. What could God do in this situation, right? God knows what's happening. He lets this happen to you, and he's letting it do it. And he says this is what he's trying to do, just trying to intimidate them. Then look at verses 11 through 15. Then Elikim, Shebna, Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master? 
and, do, and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Then, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not he let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. More trash talk, right? So what the delegates try to say is, hey, the common people know this Hebrew. They're all up on the walls listening to what you're saying. Why don't you speak to us in, in, in this, uh, in this uh, language that only we would understand or Aramaic, which would have been something that was taught only to a select few. He's saying, why don't you talk to us in Aramaic? In Aramaic? That way we can, we can work this thing out without you trying to involve everyone else. But Rabshak is like, no, I want them all to hear. Because I don't want to just come after you. I want to come after them all. And I want to strike fear into the heart of all of them and let them know that they're coming up against something that is going to destroy them. And don't let Hezekiah say you will trust in the Lord because he ain't going to deliver you. I promise you that. And so he's, he's just he's, he's trash talking them. He's trying to strike fear into them. He's trying to get them to back down. He's trying to, to cap, make them cower down. And how many times for us, it's a great reminder for us, before the battle even starts, many times we're already defeated, right? Why do we get defeated? We get defeated because we let fear set in, right? We, we let, we let this, uh, this talk of the devil and the talk of the enemy get into our hearts, and it draws our confidence away from God, and yet we have lost the battle before we even start the battle. And man, the devil's a, a great, great deceiver. And he, is, he has his tactics, he has perfected these tactics, and in your life, in my life, when we see a crisis coming, and we begin to get in this part of our life where we're really beginning to struggle, that's when he gets the loudest, right? And he gets the, he gets the demonstrative, and he begins to strike fear into us, and he begins to try to uh, speak down to us. But if you look in verse 15, it says, Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord of saying these things. Uh, surely uh, he will deliver you. This city will not be given in hands in the king of Isaiah. He's saying, don't listen to Hezekiah. He may be the leader. He may be who God has in place. But don't listen to him because there's nothing he can do. Nothing he can do. If you look down further in the verses, it says that they... Uh, did nothing but kept their mouth shut, right? They held their peace in verse 21, that, but they held their peace. That means they didn't answer them with a word. You know, sometimes it's best for us to not answer foolish criticism, right? Or not to answer, sometimes it is a good time just to keep our mouth shut, right? Because our words many times will get us into trouble. The book of Proverbs says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, right? So sometimes we don't even need to engage in it. We just need to keep our mouth shut. And sometimes it's to say nothing is the greatest thing we can do. Now, I know this is hard. This is hard because we want to lash back out, right? We want to say something, but he says, don't say a word, and they didn't say a word, and when these three had come, they were, they were there, and in verse 22, if you look, it says that they tore their clothes, and they, which is a sign of mourning. They begin to seek the Lord and go back to Hezekiah, drop down to chapter 37. 
Look at verses 1 and 2 here. And so it was when King Hezekiah here. So they were out on the field. They got the trash talk. They got the word. And now they tore their clothes. And now they were heading back to tell Hezekiah. And so they got before the king. And in verse 1, when he got to the king, he heard it. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And then he sent Elikim, who was over the house, hold Shebna, the scribe, and elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah, the prophet, and the son of Amoz. Notice what he did here? He, he tore his clothes, which is a, a reference of repentance or a sign of mourning or grief. He is saying that he is weak, he cannot do this, but yet he knows who to turn to, right? You notice what he says? He sends them to the house of the Lord, right? He says, go get, that, go get that Isaiah, right? We need to hear from the prophet of God about this situation. And so many times in a crisis, we let the enemy talk, we let ourselves talk, we let our friends talk, and we let all this talk go on. And what do we not do? We do not seek the Lord, right? We do not seek him first. And if you notice here, what he does is he sends for those in the house of the Lord, and he sends for those uh, to bring Isaiah. And somehow, some way, every time we go through a crisis, one of the biggest temptations you're going to have is to stay away from God. You're going to want to push him away. And you're going to push away the people of God. Listen, many times in church over the last 16 years as a pastor, Many times when I see people and they uh, begin to not show up at church or they begin to uh, not be as faithful to the house of the Lord, there's, that's an indicator something's happening in their life. And many times it's a crisis. Many times it's something they're struggling with. And yet, instead of going to the Lord, they push him away and they push God's people away. And so many times that's the main temptation is to get away from God and get away from God's people. Now, especially men, right? Men kind of like to stay on the fringes, you know what I mean? And when men get hurt, and when men uh, begin to go through tough times, they like to push away from everybody else. And, and so many times, that's the temptation. And it's a strange thing, because the best thing we could do in a crisis is get before the Lord, get to the Lord's house, get to the Lord's Word, right? Get into God's Word, into God's house, that's where when you have problems in your life, it's not time to stay away from God and God's people. It's time to draw closer to God's people. That's the important part of it. And that's what, Isaiah, that's what Hezekiah is saying here. It's time to go to the house of God, and it's time to hear the man of God. You want to know why it says that he was a man of God? You want to know why Hezekiah was praised as one of the great kings of Israel? Because he knew when he had problems, he went to the Lord. He went to God, and he calls them to God, and he calls them to go to the house of God and hear the man of God. Look at verse 3. And he said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. In other words, what he's saying here, this situation is beyond what we can control. This is beyond our power. This is beyond what we could ever, ever have the strength to overcome. Have you ever felt like that in a crisis? Have you ever got to a point where you realize that there is nothing 
you can do and you know you don't have the strength to make it through. You know, I know a lot of times we mean well. And a lot of times, even growing up in Christianity, maybe you've been around church for a long time, and people say, well, God will never give you anything you cannot handle, right? That's not true. <laughs> That's not true. You know why it's not true? The promise is God will not give you anything that God can't handle in your life, all right? But he does give us stuff that we can't handle to drive us to the Lord. There is nothing in our life that the Lord can't do, but there are many things we can't do, right? I mean, there are times in our life when we throw up our hands and just say, I can't do this. I don't have the strength to do this. I don't have anyone around me who can do this. And what Isaiah is saying here is he's, what Hezekiah is saying here is it's a day of trouble. It's a day of rebuke. And even the children who's coming along, we have no strength. We're a sitting duck and there's no hope for us. That's what he's saying, basically, in our own situation, in our own ability, in our own strength. Drop down to verse 6. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which I have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and will cause him to fall by this uh, will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish, and the king heard concerning Terkaka. <laughs> you know how to say that, Teraka, king of Ethiopia. He has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it. He sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not get, be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to the, all the lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered. In other words, you've seen this before. We are, we are tough. We are bad. We are a nation-eating nation, so to speak, right? Like you have seen it, and he's saying, the people don't fall for this. Don't fall for Hezekiah saying that God will deliver, because I'm telling you, surely you, he, you will not be delivered. You will be utterly destroyed just like everyone else. Look at verse 12. Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Goes on in Haran and Respes. And the people of Eden who were in Telescar, Telesar, where is the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad and the king of the city of Sarfavim, Hena and Ibba? And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. I love that part. I mean, here he was. He took a stand, sent for Isaiah, and now the, the king of Assyria gets the word, and he sends back another delegation to say, Hezekiah, there's no hope for you. You're going to be destroyed. All your people's going to be destroyed. And just like every other person, you're a sitting duck. And it's just a matter of time before you're going to bite the dust. Hezekiah gets the letter, and it says he went up into the house of the Lord. I love that part. He went up to the presence of God. That's what he did. He took it and he went to God and he went to the Lord and it says he spread it before the Lord. I think that's a beautiful picture of casting his burdens before the Lord. 
You know, if you're in a crisis, that's something you got to learn how to do, right? If you're in a crisis, you got to learn how to go to the Lord and just spread your burdens out on the altar, right? I mean, just put it out on the altar. Sometimes at the altar or at the front, you know, we see a physical representation of that coming and bowing before the Lord and just putting all your troubles and trials on the line, right? Just pouring your heart out before the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of exactly what Hezekiah is saying here. He just goes before God and spreads it all out before the Lord. Pours his heart out. And, and so many times for us, that's where we got to get. We got to get to the point in our faith that we take our burden to the Lord. You know, so many times, the last place we take our burden is to the Lord, right? So many times in my life, through cr crisis and through troubles and through trials, you know, I like to mix it up a little bit, so to speak, right? Like, I try to think I can solve my own problems, you know? Or I think I can take care of my own situations. I think I can try to, try to take care of these things. But Hezekiah here is recognizing his weakness. And he's recognizing this crisis that he can do nothing except take it to the Lord and put it all on the altar. And so many times for us, when we got a problem or a crisis, right? Somebody gives us a hard time. Somebody takes us through the ringer, so to speak. We've got to tell God on them, right? I mean, take it to the Lord. Like, Lord, you know about this, and I'm going to tell you, you need to change this situation. And let me tell you, I cannot count the number of times in my life where I wanted to say something and do something to somebody so bad in my own power and flesh, right? But I, but I, I sucked it up. I didn't say anything. I went back and prayed to the Lord, and guess what? God changed the situation, right? I mean, pouring it out before the Lord, sometimes it doesn't happen right away, but the, the point being is learning how to take your burdens to the Lord. So many times we like to take our burdens to the Lord, and then when we get up from the altar, we pick them back up and carry them back with us, right? <laughs> That's what we like to do. You know what makes us do that? Wor worry, fear, anxiety, right? We don't truly trust that God can handle them. And we don't truly trust that it's in the Lord and Him alone that we find our trust and we find our faith. And we, yet Hezekiah knew this. He put it all on the altar. He left it there for the Lord. And he laid it all out before the Lord. And listen to this prayer that he prays. I mean, talk about a wonderful prayer. Look at this prayer beginning in verse 15 of chapter 37. It says, Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Let me tell you, when you start your prayers, you can never go wrong with glorifying God, right? I mean, when you set the perspective of who God really is, that kind of sets the tone for the rest of your prayers, right? Hezekiah is saying, I don't care who the king of Assyria is. I don't care who the other kings are. You alone are God. You're the God who dwells between the cherubim, right? I think it was interesting when we went through Isaiah chapter 6 and he saw, that, he saw that vision of the Lord and the cherubims were there. And it said that he was protecting the, they were protecting the throne of God. And I thought Jared had a great question. What in the world are they protecting it from, right? <laughs> because what would God need any protection for? But it's just a picture of his sheer power. And just the Lord who sits between the cherubim, you and you alone, and all the kingdoms of the earth. How many times do we get ourselves bent out of shape over worldly things, 
over political things, over national things, and we lose sleep and we lose uh, faith in God. And what Hezekiah is saying, God, you're over heaven and earth. You're dwelling from the throne of God, and it just kind of changes our perspective a little bit, right? You know what prayer does? When you go to God in prayer like this, you lose your perspective, and you begin to see it from God's perspective. You know, in your situation, if you think it's too hard or too, uh, that God can't handle that, maybe you need to see it from the throne of God. And when you see God for who He is, and you see God for what He can do, it changes your whole attitude. Look, He says, you're the God. And you're there, and he says, incline your ear, O Lord. Hear me, God. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of scenario. He's saying, this Serenachib guy, Bubba, whatever his name is, all right? He's saying, you hear all this? He's mocking me. He's mocking God. He's mocking the people of God. By the way, you don't mock God and God's people and get away with it, by the way, right? That's what Hezekiah is saying. He's mocking you, God. He's mocking your people, he sent this reproach to the living God. I said this last week when we talked about the millennial reign a little bit and talking about the end times. There's one person or one uh, person you never want to be on the wrong side of, and that's the returning Christ, right? I mean, he's going to rule and reign, and you want to be on his side. But he says, you hear this, you see this, Lord. Verse 18, truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations. Said, yeah, they have. They've tore them all up. And they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they destroyed them. So he's saying, they serve these false gods. And of course they overcome them, because their gods have no power. They're no gods. But look at verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, and let that all the kingdoms of the earth that may know that you are the Lord, you alone. I love this part because he starts with the glory of God and he ends with the glory of God, all right? Let me tell you, when God does something for you, don't steal his glory, all right? God does not like those who take his glory. And King Hezekiah knew, start with the glory of God and end with the glory of God, right? He didn't say, let all people know how great King Hezekiah is, right? He said, let all know that God and him alone is the Lord of God Almighty, it's a great prayer. I hope you read that prayer and study it. It's a great prayer. We've got to move on. Look at verse 21. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, uh, sent to Hezekiah saying, this is the word from the Lord. This is the answer to his prayer. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you have prayed to me against the Sheridan, <laughs> king of Assyria, Basically, he begins to tell him what God is going to do. I know we're skipping all around, but basically, through the word of Isaiah, he tells him he's going to judge this king. Look at verse 30. There shall be a sign to you. He's going to tell him exactly how it's going to happen. There's going to be a remnant out of Jerusalem. Verse 33 says, The Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city, and nor one arrow will not fall. He's saying he's doing all this big, bad, tough talk. Not even one arrow is going to be shot into this city. Not one. Not even one. They've been boasting and talking about how bad they are. And with one, uh, they're going to come into the city and overtake the people of God, the city of God, and the ruler of God. Not one single area, arrow is going to fall in this city. And look at verse 36 of chapter 37. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians, 185,000 
And when people arose early in the morning, there were corpses all dead. Imagine that. One angel wiped out 185,000 people in one night. One angel. You know, the verse says here, like it says, the angel of the Lord came to the camp, and one angel dead, 185,000 people dead in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And you think about it, even looking down at verse 37, 38, Sherinachib, uh, king of Assyria, departed, went his way. He ran, he fled. He went back to Nineveh for a while, and it came to pass he was worshiping in the house of Nishra, his god, which is a false god. And his sons, Adrimelech and Shazerir, struck him down with a sword and escaped in the land of Ararat. And the Esardian, his son, reigned in his place. The, 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 the army was destroyed. And what came to pass? The king was slayed himself by his own sword from his own sons. I mean, in a moment, just like that. Just like that. And Hezekiah goes to the house of his lord. He gets deliverance. Sheridan goes to the false god, and he doesn't get deliverance right. He gets destruction. So which god do you want to serve? That's a great question to ask, right? I mean, think about this. Which god do you want to serve? The god who delivers or the god who destroys, right? Hezekiah is a great picture of this, all right? So that's the first one, all right? That took us almost 40 minutes. You guys aren't listening fast enough, all right? Second crisis, all right? The personal crisis. Look at verse uh, chapter 38. This is a personal crisis. This is not on an international level. This is on a personal level. Look at verse 1. In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. You know, for me, as a pastor, this is one of the toughest things to do, right? You have to go when no one else wants to go, right? I mean, think about, oh, Isaiah. There he is, and he got the word, Hezekiah is going to die. And God sent him to Hezekiah and tells him, set your house in order, buddy. You got a disease, and you're going to die, and you're not going to live. In other days, in other words, your days are numbered, and there's not a whole lot of them left. And you better set your house in order, and you'll be ready to die. You know, you think about this, sometimes a sobering fact we think about, we think about the, the imminency of death. We think about how, how quick life can come and go, right? For no one knows tomorrow, no one knows the day or the time. Each one of us has our days numbered, but many times when you see it coming, and here in Isaiah it says he sees it, your time is up, it's shattering news, right? I'm sure Hezekiah was devastated, kind of like, Going to the doctor and they look and say, there's nothing else we could do for you. Get all your purple, per, you know, your papers together. You're not going to be in this world very much longer. Sobering, right? I mean, sobering news. And so Hezekiah was uh, part of this news and he heard this news. And so look at verse 2 through 3. What does he do? Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I walk before you in truth with a loyal heart, and have done what it is, what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Listen, you can have faith in God and still grieve, right? <laughs> so many times we think when death happens or death is, death is imminent in our lives that we've got to be tough, right? Don't cry. We're Christians. We know where we're going. You're going to a better place. But it still hurts, right? 
You still have grief. You still got to deal with it. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall, meaning that he went to the Lord in private. There are times when things are going to come into your life that you need to go to the Lord in privacy, right? And it, it was so dear to his heart, and it wrenched his heart so much, he went to the Lord individually, turned to him, called out on him, and said, Lord, you know I'm a servant of yours. You know I have a loyal heart. You know I did what was good in your sight. And he was weeping bitterly. And he was telling God these things. Look at verse 3. He says, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech ye how I have walked in truth of the perfect heart which done good in your sight. Look at 4 and 5. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah. This is Isaiah once more, the man of God. Go to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer. I have seen your tears, and surely I will add to your days 15 years. He had went to the Lord and prayed, and he hears our prayers. Isn't it wonderful to know that God hears our prayers? Not only does he hear our prayers, he sees our tears. You know, in Psalms, one of the psalmists says that God puts his tears in a bottle. In Revelation, it talks about the tears being poured out. And it talks about that God sees every tear and God sees every prayer and God sees every one of them. And each one of them, He cares for us individually, personally. So many times we get to thinking about who we are and what we've done. That before the Lord, He not only cares about who you are and what you've done, He cares about you personally. And this was a personal request to the Lord that Hezekiah called out to the Lord and Isaiah was sent to him and said, you'll give you 15 more years. You got 15 more years, Hezekiah. Look at verse 6 through 9. I will deliver you <coughs> and this city from the hand of the king of Syria. This is, this is chapter 38. I will defend this city and his sign will be a you from the Lord, that the Lord will do such thing as he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow of the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. And the sun returned ten degrees on the dial by which, which it had gone. One of the two places in the Bible where you see God either made time stand still or made it reverse. Think about this. They had a sundial, went up the steps, and that's the way they were trying to uh, fix for the time. And what he's saying is, I'll turn back the time. The sundial will go backwards, 10 degrees. And God not only holds just our lives, but he holds the whole universe and the whole creation, right? All of time is in God's hands. Nothing is outside of the power of God, nothing. And he says, I'll turn it back 10 degrees and he says, oh, oh, in verse 9, this is the writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, when he had been sick and he recovered from his sickness. He doesn't always give a sign, but yet he gave a sign. He showed him physically what was going to happen. A shadow going up the steps was turned back. And he says, I have answered your prayers. And then look at verse 10. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol, which is just death. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. I said, I shall not see, Yah, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall observe no man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom from day until night, and you make an end of me. I have considered until morning like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. 
Like a crane or a swallow, I, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes, my eyes fell from looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. What shall I say? He has both spoken to me. He himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. O oh Lord, by these things men live, and these things in the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I, get, that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down into the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to, your ch to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with string instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let them make, uh, take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. This is the prayer that goes along with the healing. He said, here I am. You me. I was like nothing. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to praise you in the house of the Lord forever, right? Like, I'm going to praise you and give you all the glory and all the honor for it. Went to the Lord as a beautiful song and deliverance. And all the emotions that come in it. And he says, we're going to sing in the house of the Lord with stringed instruments and all these things forever. Some people believe here, this uh, boil, as he says, puts on this lump of figs. And verse 21 was like a modern type medicine. Some people believe it was a skin disease. Others believe, believe it may be on cancer. But whatever it was, they put it in on his body with the power of God. And he was healed, right? That's why it's always important for us to trust in the Lord's healing. Medicine is great. Modern medicine is great. Technology is great. Doctors are great. All those things. But ultimately, it's the hand of the Lord that heals. And we ought to pray, and we ought to do all we can, and we ought to pray for the Lord's uh, provision in our life. And that's what he does. Whatever God touches, he heals. And he gave him a 15 more years in your life. When you have sickness or when you have a crisis, where do you go? Hezekiah went to the Lord, and he asked him, and he says, give him 15 more years. Now, in those 15 years, it cost him, right? We know the rest of the story. His, his son comes along and succeeded him. There was a, a son who succeeded him named Manasseh. Now, obviously, Manasseh didn't walk with the Lord, and he turned against the Lord. Some people say, well, he shouldn't ask for 15 more years, and, you know, what about this and what about that? But let me tell you, when you get into the what-ifs of life, you get in some very tall weeds, right? You can't do the what-ifs with God. You can't do what should have been or what could have been. you got to go with what happened, and you got to know what is true. And if God has done it through his providence and his sovereignty, it's time to trust it, not doubt it. And here was Hezekiah. He sought the Lord. He asked him for healing. He gave him 15 more years, and God gave them to him. And it, just a wonderful, uh, wonderful example of turning to the Lord. Last one, chapter 39 a national crisis. I won't be able to read any of this, but you can see basically what happens is Babylonians don't get them from the outside. They get them from the inside. You know, the devil is so tricky. Many times he don't come at you full-faced, right? He comes at you behind the scenes, right? So you can see in the beginning, Assyrians tried to overtake them straight on, but the Babylonians came in the back door. 
And he went to Hezekiah and said, Oh, I heard, Hezekiah, that you're doing well, that you've been healed, that all is great. We'd love to see your palace and we'd love to see who you are. And so, sure enough, he welcomed him into his palace and he showed him around. And yet, they took that and mapped out the, the kingdom and found out a way that they could slip in there. And just like I said, if he doesn't come at you like a roaring lion, he comes at you through another way. And he, and he just kind of weaves his way in there and he begins to, uh, he begins to work in such a way that the end result is that the nation of God, the people of God, is carried away into Babylonian captivity. That's what happens to them. They compromise. They didn't really recognize it as a crisis. And this is where we talk about him having a feet of clay. He did so well, but he missed this one, right? I mean, he missed this one because he didn't seek the Lord, and he didn't seek after him, and he didn't trust in the Lord. And it's a great warning for us. A crisis many times keeps us on our knees and keeps us close to the Lord. But in prosperity, many times that's where we fall away from the Lord. So many times in sickness, we seek the Lord, right? We, we, don't, we don't have to pray. We, we want to pray, right? Lord, I need to be healed. Lord, I need your touch. I need your power. But yet, when we're healthy, many times we don't pray. Many times we don't thank the Lord. In times of sickness, and times of tough, and crisis times, we step to, the, step to the front, and we serve, and we love God, and we seek His face. But yet, in times of prosperity, kind of put them on the back burner, right? We kind, of let it, we kind of let it go by the wayside. And all of a sudden, we let things in our life, and we let things come in our life, and we let things come in our families and our homes that all of a sudden begins to get a grip on us. And next thing you know, we're carried away into captivity. And that's why it's always important to be sure, wherever you are, to be sure that you seek the will of the Lord. Seek God's will for your life. Seek the house of the Lord and listen and obey the word of God in your life. No matter in prosperity or crisis, wherever you may be, always do that and seek the Lord in, in those times. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you, Lord. And God, we just thank you for your word tonight. God, I just pray for these times in our life, Lord. Maybe somebody's here and they're in a crisis in their life right now, Lord. God, I just pray that they will learn how to take their burdens to the Lord. That they will just take it and spread it before the Lord. And just turn it over to you, God. Not by our might, not by our power, because we have no strength to stand, but we just give it into your hands, God. And you're a mighty God. You're a God who can answer prayer. You're a God who can deliver. You're a God who can destroy nations. You're a God who can strike down kings. And in our lives, Lord, you're a God who can take care of our families. You're a God who can take care of our, our community. You're a God who can take care of our sicknesses, Lord. And I pray that we'll have a heart that trusts in you like Hezekiah. But also, Lord, a warning in our lives of prosperity, in our lives of good times, Lord. Let us, not, let us not fall. Let us not get complacent. Let us not begin to boast in who we are or what you've done in our life, Lord. But let us stay on guard and continually seek you, Lord. And not compromise and not let the workings of the enemy get into the back door, Lord. But to continue to seek you. To continue to pray. To continue to Lift up your name and seek your face, Lord. I pray they will do that in the crisis times and in the good times and everything in between, Lord. And we will keep you first. We will listen to the house of the Lord or the man of God or the word of God, and we will obey it in our lives. Whatever we're going through, Lord, that we trust in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.